Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today is all about impermanence. As you may know, one of the foundational teachings of the Buddha, of Buddhism, is impermanence. Things don't last. Things change. Things are constantly shifting and changing. And we try to control things. We try to predict things. We try to exercise some kind of certainty around our lives. And how does that work out? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by David Parent. David Perrin, as you know, is a regular contributor to the podcast. If you haven't heard his talks, you should uh, go back into our catalog, listen to some of the great talks that he has given in the past. This was a talk he gave at our weekly Dharma gathering just a couple weeks ago. David Perrin is also leading our introductory meditation weekend, which is called Shambhala Training Weekend One, Feel Human Again. The weekend of November 9th, that's Friday night, November 9th, Saturday the 10th, and half of Sunday on the 11th. If you've been listening for a while, particularly if you've been enjoying David Perrin's talks on the podcast, this is a great opportunity to study with him for a full weekend of ongoing meditation instruction, discussions, discussion groups, one-on-one meditation consultations with David or one of the members of the faculty. This is why people love Shambhala Training Weekends. For more information and to register, Click the link on the homepage, ny.shambhala.org, next to Shambhala Training Weekend 1. Feel human again. And now, here is David Perrin talking about impermanence. And every beginning is the ending. Anytime something begins, it's going to end. And we get that philosophically, But actually, viscerally, that doesn't sit so well. We spend most of our time denying that that's the case. At least I do. For some reason, this fall, I came back and it was like everything, everything was changing. My favorite restaurant was gone. My son's piano teacher left suddenly. Like you know, Liquiteria in the East Village, the first, this first juice shop was, and, and the, the guy who started, he used to take such good care of it on, on 2nd Avenue and 11th Street. He, he was like out there every day talking to everyone and he had a broom and he was just, you know, he was, he was cheerful and, uh, and there was such good energy around the place. And then I think something happened. I think they sold it and it was kind of just became a chain and it didn't feel the same anyway anymore and I walked by yesterday and it was it's just just like gone space for rent so these are the changes that happen particularly in New York all the time do you ever have a, that thing of where you see someone in your neighborhood all the all the time or often and then you don't see them anymore and you wonder like what happened to that person <sighs> So the, the world is very strange that way in that every, in every beginning is an ending and in every 
ending is a beginning. And I want to tell you, I, I brought a story tonight to share with you um, that kind of has, has this flavor of it. This is one of the actually the most famous of the, of the old time stories from the Buddhist sutras, which are the teachings of the Buddha. And this comes from a kind of um, uh, something called the Teragata, which is the this collection of the elder nuns' stories and verses that are in some ways reflections of or further teachings uh, uh, of, um, based on the Buddha's teachings. Um, so this is the story of the mustard seed. Has anyone heard the story of the mustard seed before? Yeah, a few of you? Okay, it's a very famous story. But there's a, there, I'm going to tell you a part that maybe you hadn't heard before. So in this, uh, so once upon a time, there was a young woman um, uh, Kisa Gotami was her name, and this so this story comes from India, where the Buddha Buddha lived and taught. Um, and so uh, Kisa Gotami had a child. She was very happy, and um, the child started growing up. I have three kids, so I can really relate to this story. All the like maddening moments, but the moments of pure joy of seeing this little being, you know, um, absorbing the world and exploring. And a very unfortunate thing happened, which is that, uh, and the way it's told historically is that the child had an accident, fell or something, and died. So of course you can imagine that Kisa Gautami was beside herself with grief. She was just, um, people pe from, from the outside, the outside observers uh, that the story is told thought that she was losing her mind. And she had her child, and sometimes you'll see pictures depicted, depicting this story where she actually has her child on her hip, even though he's passed away. And she's carrying him around and asking for help, begging for help. And she goes to one sort of doctor-type person and says, um, can you help me? Can you help bring life back to my child? And the, and the doctor says, no, unfortunately, I can't. And, and says, but I do know a healer that, that may be able to help you. And that person's uh, name, that person is the Buddha, um, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. Go to, go to the Buddha. And, and historically, the Buddha, particularly in, these, in the sutras, in the, the Pali Canon, in the Theravadan tradition, the Buddha is often referred to as a doctor or a healer, someone that, that people go to. And if you think nowadays how we all go to the doctor and many of us, are really take that person that person's authority for uh, for real. Like if the doctor says do it, you do it. Most of the time, I find myself being more and more skeptical. But anyway, back in the day, back in the day, the Buddha was the person that you went to for for healing and advice. So um, she goes, Kisa Gotami goes to the Buddha and says, "Please help help me restore life to my child, my dear, my baby." And the Buddha says, okay, I think that I may be able to help you, but I need you to do something first before I offer you some assistance. And she says, okay, whatever you want. He says, I want you to go and collect mustard seeds from a number of different households. But the only thing about the, these collecting these mustard seeds is you can only get them, the ones that I need you to bring to me are only from households where no one has passed away, no one has died. 
And so in her state, she thinks, of course, I'll go find the mustard seeds. Of course, this is what I want more than life itself is to, is to restore my child. So she starts going around and knocking on doors. She goes to the first household and, uh, and asks for this mustard seed and says, and they say, sure. And she says, but no one's died here, right? And they say, oh, I'm sorry, my daughter or my, you know, my, my friend. Um, well, of course we've had people die in this house. So she goes to the next household, same thing, over and over and over and over. And it begins to dawn on her what? that the number of people who have died far, vastly outweighs the number of people who are alive. And then in fact, she can't find any mustard seeds. And so um, the way the story is told is that she, one of the ways it's told is that she sits kind of, she's outside the village and she's looking towards the village or, or, or down, um, kind of down on the village and she notices um, as the night as night falls, there's there's lights twinkling on all the houses, and one by one, <clears throat> the lights start to go out as people go to bed, and the home fires are die down. And it dawns on her, oh my gosh, I've been so consumed in my grief and in this personal situation of losing this child. I've as I raise my gaze and realize there's a whole world out there in which this situation of um, impermanence is inevitable, it, it, it dawns. And she realizes that the Buddha is her teacher and she uh, agrees to bury her child and take her child to the charnel ground and to become, uh, to become a nun, to become a student of the Buddha. Now here's a very interesting, I find this fascinating. Before she had her child, this is how she got married. So the prequel to this story is that once upon a time, there was a wealthy man who was in his nice big house. And all of a sudden one day, all of his gold which was, he was essentially keeping around him in, in nice things. And he had all his Gucci and all the rest of that. You know, he was like surrounding himself with this nice stuff. All of a sudden, in one moment, psh, it became ash. It turned to coal, turned to dust. And he started freaking out. What's going on? His friend comes over and says, oh, what's the problem? He says, look, at look, it's all ashes. He said, okay, of course. You're hoarding all of your stuff. You're this, all of this stuff you're accumulating for yourself, you're not helping anyone else out. Of course it turned to ash. And the guy's sitting there going, what are you talking about? And, then, and, and his friend says, I know what you should do. Go to the market, bring all your ashes, and put them down there as if they, you were selling them or trading them. And the wise man is thinking, this is preposterous. How is that ever going to help me? What's, what's going what's gonna to happen? Goes to the market. People are walking by, look, imagine going to like one of the farmer's markets and seeing someone sell ashes. You'd be like, what is this person's problem? Sitting there, no one's coming up to him. And all of a sudden, Kisa Gotame, a young woman, comes up to him and says, sir, why are you selling all of your gold? And he says, excuse me? 
She said, you're gold. You have it all right here. He says, can you hand me some of that gold? She picks up the ash, and as she picks up the ash, it's gold, and she hands him back the gold. That's the same Kisugutami who that wealthy man said, please will you join my family and marry one of my sons, which she does, and that's the son that she has the child by for whom the story we just heard. So many ways that this story I find mind-blowing. First of all, this young woman, who was clearly a realized being, right, can still go and have a child that passes away and still have to realize the lesson of impermanence, even though she could turn ashes into gold. The beginning is in the end, and the end is in the beginning, right? In this very story. There's something about this story that leaves us a little bit groundless. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit like, whoa, but so then what do I hold on to? (laughs) And that is the for me, is very much the state of mind, if I'm honest with myself, every time I sit down to meditate. I just taught a class before I came here, and I said to the folks, we're going to do a breath class. But remember, every time we tune into the, this autonomic breath that's happening, this stable breath that's happening, the breath goes out and dissolves, and none of us know what's going to happen next. Does anybody in this room know what's going to happen next? Does anybody know what's going to happen when you walk out of the Shambhala Center tonight? When you go to bed tonight? Wake up in the morning? Think about how much time we invest in making sure in our mind that we know what's going to happen next. It's pretty much our life's work. So that when we sit down on the cushion to tune into what's going on now and dissolve into the uncertainty of what's going to happen next, boom. All of a sudden, this life's mission of figuring out what the next move is going to be and how we're going to guarantee some form of the next moment, it just kind of like... And no no wonder the mind freaks out. No wonder we sit there and go, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Right? All the thoughts start popping off. So what do you think? What do you think about this this amazing thing we call life that is unpredictable? uncertain, and yet in any given moment, some version of Kisugutami could walk into our life and point out that what we're working with is pure gold.
that's that moment of lifting the gaze. That, that, that's that person that comes across your way when you're completely mired and walking down the street and says, hello. It's waiting for us all the time. That's the gift. That's what we learn in meditation. The gift that we're giving ourselves in meditation is that every moment the world is, in some sense, is trying to wake us up, is trying to give us a fresh start. And so all we're doing is kind of meeting it halfway. We're putting in a little bit of effort. We're slogging through all the thoughts and the habitual and the nonsense so that we might be present a little more often when we're about to rush to get on the train or we're about to rush to get on the bus and someone says, oh yeah, please go first. There's innumerable acts of kindness and generosity that are happening right now in this town. So what about you? What's your fresh start or your ending or your instability? What do you think? My question is, I think when we fully understand impermanence and fully, it hits us. I mean, it seems like you said, it's the, there is no ground at all. Um, so what what are we supposed to grab onto to bring stability? I mean, if we really fully inhabit impermanence, then, and in the Buddhist teaching, there doesn't seem to be anything there to really hold on to after, afterwards. So, um, yeah. I think you got it. <laughs> And it even starts to get even more far out, which is that what is this thing that's looking for? What is this self made up of that is in itself um, a discrete entity that could grab, grab onto something? That's, that's a few more steps down the road, but that's the territory I think we're kind of hiking around in. Um, I think you said something about um, what, what is one of our endings. Mm. Um, I think that I was thinking about um, my own suffering mm. in terms of... Uh, you know, dedicating my life to ending suffering by being a social worker, mm -hmm. but like inadvertently, like accepting my own suffering and not and being okay with that, and that I'm not okay with that, and like that I want that to end, and to find a balance between both. Yeah. No. Thank you for for sharing that. I think that that's a really important point that um, often uh, uh, this kind of resistance that we have to um, things as they are, 
right? And so t to me is a, a way of talking about suffering is that we, we're actually just, we have a hard time with being with things as they are, which doesn't sometimes like the language of acceptance gets used. And it, I think being with things as they are doesn't preclude um, working for or working for change and trying to uh, trying to bring about um, a just and sane world. But but that moment of actually being in our own experience, our own pain, our own discomfort, and particularly, as you said, being with another person. I was just reading some of the teachings of, the, um, uh, of this lineage of uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and, and he actually is, he gave a talk to, to social workers and healers, and he said that the first thing that we do is find ourselves in their story. You know what I mean? We, we find a way in which when we're with them, we're with our own story. And there's a, there is this validation that we're, we're both in this situation of suffering. So we, st we start from that place. And if we start from that place, that the way in which that person that we're with is seen, that quality of attention that I was talking about in the beginning is so transformative that actually their own healing can start to happen. And it doesn't even, it's not like we're making it happen. It's this, this tendency, this, this, this uh, trending towards health, which I believe is always kind of wanting to, to, to emerge as long as it doesn't get blocked, um, it, it, it can happen. And so I, I, I absolutely agree that, that doing this practice and relating to the ways in which we get tripped up within. All right, thank you so much. To, to have a fresh start with each person that we see, right? Because social worker, you work in a school, even if you're working in an office, you, you're encountering people all day long. In some ways, there's not a lot of breaks. So if we don't do this practice to figure out what our little small fresh starts are during the day, we will get lost. We will get carried away by other people's stories and narratives because we won't be so attuned to our own. Very well said. Thank you. I guess I was reflecting on the idea of um, how life is constantly trying to wake one up. And I've noticed at different times throughout my own uh, life when things have fallen apart that it's been an opportunity for wisdom. Um, but of course, the ego wants to feel solid, um, wants to feel some sense of security. So right now, <laughs> I'm in a period of sort of like cozy, happy, like my parents are both still alive. I've been waiting for that other shoe to drop. Mm. And I feel a little confused, like I'm sort of between two states of consciousness. One is um, just knowing that everything's impermanent, but then trying to find a way to uh, enjoy what I have knowing that it's transient it's just it's a it's a tricky paradox so it's just interesting because i guess um it's a mystery how those karmic seeds ripen to the mm -hmm. point where life boom you know it's like the the hoarding when it turns to ash um i've known people who have had fires i'm always like what why have i been protected yes. maybe i'm next yes so i just wondered if you could maybe comment on that idea yeah, I mean, I think that um, 
I, I really resonate with what you're saying. And, and I think about um, the ways in which um, fear and trepidation play a, play a part uh, in, in kind of my uh, everyday experience, that there's always this underlying notion that, that, that things might fall apart. But that is, um, if we can begin to relate to that discomfort, then it is the gateway to fearlessness. Because rather than um, trying to convince, if, if we can stay in that uncertainty, like if we can begin to, or if we can continue to relate to that uncertainty. And I think that this practice is a, is a, is a gentle way of doing that every day, right? Like we, if we did this every day, we would tune into what's actually going on with us. And some days it does feel just pleasurable and we feel settled and clear and open. But in other days, we are worried that that might go away. And so if we don't, if we're not relating to what that worry is, then we are going to set up a situation where hope and, the hope and fear become, start to escalate. Because we're hoping something will stay a certain way and we're afraid that it, it, it won't. And that all comes from n not relating to just a baseline kind of hum of, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. That's just a, the, that's a natural part of being alive. I don't think it goes away. Because like I said in the beginning, none of us in this room know what's going to happen next. So if we take that as a given, then we, then we have to accept that there's going to be that, that low-level hum of, I'm not sure. And that's okay. We don't have to run away from that. And in fact, so much of what we do is trying to escape that feeling. So when we sit down in meditation and we relate to something that is um, that a context that hold that can hold that fear, that's what the breath does. That's what lifting our gaze and taking that fresh start does. It, is it, is it reminds us, I'm already whole. I actually have nothing to lose because I'm 100% complete. I have everything that I need in this moment. I am the stuff of basic goodness. We talk, we talk about basic goodness in this tradition. The whole world is made of basic goodness. It can't be added to or taken away from. But on a relative plane, we feel like if some, we lose something, we'll become less than. And so we, by relating to that, just acknowledging that, we're doing the work of um, someone who's very brave and courageous in this world, a work that a lot of people aren't willing to do and in a way, we have so many built-in distractions from just relating to that baseline hum of instability that um, it takes coming here and finding ways to give your undivided attention without your attention being taken away from some something or someone that doesn't want you to think about it. Is that helpful? All right. Thank you so much. That's right. This episode of the podcast is over. It was not permanent. It was not meant to be. It was constantly changing. And now it is ending. 
Thank you, David Perrin. Thank you, everybody, for listening and telling your friends about the podcast. Visit our website, nyadachimbala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Again, David Perrin is teaching our introductory meditation weekend, Shambhala Training Weekend 1, the weekend of November 9th. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Okay? We have now reached the end.